0: Cult leader Warren Jeffs was on the run. Stories of abuse from former members of the FLDS were coming to light, including some which could bring criminal charges his way. In 2006, Warren made the FBI's most wanted list. Even in hiding, Warren was continuing to collect young wives. One of his latest was only 12 years old. I'm so glad that you're here with me today so that we can investigate how hard it would be to break free from a cult like the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and really any congregation that is having cultic practices. I'm your host, Private Investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle this story from the world of true crime and see what spiritual and safety lessons we can find there. I really believe that every Christian's calling is to be what I call a different kind of PI, not a private investigator, but a person of impact. So stick around because we're going to talk about how we can all do just that in our own communities. This is season four, episode 13. We're wrapping up our deep dive into the book, The Witness War Red by Rebecca Muster. Rebecca is an author, activist mom, and was the 19th wife of Rulon Jeffs, Warren Jeffs' father. We found some great takeaways from Rebecca's story over the last couple of weeks. So if you haven't listened to those, you can follow the links in the show notes and get yourself caught up. Finally, in August of 2006, Warren Jeffs was found and arrested near, of all places for a man who preached separation from a sinful world, Las Vegas. Rebecca was asked by authorities to share testimony about her knowledge of not only Warren's crimes, but the inner workings of the cult itself. Her faith community had taken Warren's side. Her own mother even said that she would rather see all of her children lying in their graves than to see any of them challenge an FLDS leader. And that is the grip that cult leaders or anybody that is just relying on the power of personality and charisma to control followers. So it's something that even in a mainline Christian church, we have to be on the watch for. As authorities worked with Rebecca and told her how sorry they were for everything she had gone through, it really amazed her that a man could hear her story and be angry about what had been done to her. So even after she left, just the the mindset that she had been taught her whole life still had a bit of a grip on her. That should really make all of us stop and think. If someone would come to us with a story about being abused, would they feel like we cared about it and were outraged at what they had endured? Or would we make excuses and protect abusers because we believed them to be doing, quote, God's work? Being in jail didn't slow Warren down much. Everyone still loyal to the cult was still following his orders, but not Rebecca. She was due to testify at a hearing and boldly decided to wear red, the color that Warren himself had banned because he said it was worldly and sinful. But he wasn't the one calling the shots in that courtroom, and the judge ruled that he would stand trial on two felony charges of accomplice to rape. When it came time to testify at Warren's actual trial, Rebecca boldly wore red again. Warren was convicted of being an accomplice to the rape of a minor, Two different counts, two victims. Once it was over, authorities told her that Arizona had charged Warren with additional crimes, and they would need Rebecca to testify again. She really didn't want to. But when she thought about her little sisters, who were still living under Warren's control, she knew she had to. And then she learned that there were new allegations of violence at this new compound in Texas, and she knew she had to help there too. She did not want another situation like what happened to the Branch Davidian cult in Waco. And that's a whole nother true crime story. There are a lot of fascinating articles and some books. There's a really good show on Netflix, actually, too, I think. So if you want to learn more about the Branch Davidians, it's fascinating. You had someone who was claiming that he was Christ returned to Earth and people listened to him. People followed him and horrible things happened. Rebecca was able to speak with the officers who would be going into the compound because she wanted to explain to them the best way to approach the people with a kindness that they had been told outsiders weren't even capable of. And again, back to the Branch Davidians. Their leader had really cultivated this us-against-them mentality that the world was out to get them, that they had to stick together, that it would be violent when it finally came to the authorities approaching them. And that's what Warren Jeffs had been teaching his cult members too, and Rebecca knew it. So she wanted to make sure that the authorities realized that's how people are going to expect you to come in. And if you come in and you're different, you're not the way they had been taught you would act, they were much more likely to cooperate and you'd be able to keep things nonviolent. It turned out that the cult members weren't exactly cooperative, but there was no violence. And one of the strangest things that the officers noticed was that in the school, there was a picture of Warren Jeffs on every single student desk. They also found records of underage girls delivering babies. So the Department of Children's Services came in and decided that they needed to remove all of the children under the age of 17 and place them in foster care for their own safety. Even interviewing the kids to talk about their experiences was very difficult because of the cultural barriers. Most of the girls who were very visibly pregnant denied ever even having had sex. And it wasn't necessarily that they were lying, they just used different terminology. So Rebecca advised the law enforcement officers to ask the girls if they had ever had marital relations. That they would admit to. They didn't understand what having sex even meant. Authorities asked Rebecca why it seemed like as they were moving through the compound and searching different buildings and questioning different people, that there were groups of kids following them and writing about them in these notebooks. She said, yes, they were making a record so they could keep track of the damned. And that's what cults do. They foster that us versus them mentality that we talked about to keep people loyal out of fear. Now, God tells us in his word over and over and over again, to fear not, to not live in a spirit of fear, to lean on and trust in him. So if you're a part of a group or you know somebody who is, that wants the people that follow to stay afraid all of the time, I hope you'll really think about whether that's an environment that you or your loved one should stay in. I'm not going to say that it's definitely not because I don't know your circumstances, but I just want you to look at things with an open and critical mind to really know if someone is trying to help you or they're trying to control you. Now, Rebecca was afraid of what might happen to these people in the cult because a lot of them were family members. They were close friends that she still loved. If she didn't go to Texas to help, she knew what might happen. Now, as officers continued their search of the compound, they had to search the temple as well. Many were men of faith themselves, and they felt bad about entering what was someone else's sacred space. They quit feeling bad pretty quickly once they found meticulous records of marriages, many to underage girls. Those records confirmed what cult members had been denying all this time. They also found a training room of sorts. And I'm gonna spare you describing what kind of training went on in that room. Authorities found evidence that Warren was gearing the cult up to practice blood atonement once more, if they hadn't been already. We talked a little bit about blood atonement last week, and that's the doctrine that holds that Christ's sacrifice just wasn't enough for some certain types of sins, and that more blood had to be shed for those sins and it would be your blood being shed if you were the one that had committed those sins. Probably the worst evidence that authorities found, in my opinion, from just purely an emotional standpoint, was a photo of 50-year-old Warren Jeffs passionately kissing his 12-year-old bride. Now, I can remember seeing that one on the news. Because of everything that they found during the search of that Texas compound, 12 men were indicted for various crimes that happened in Utah, Arizona, Texas, and even Canada. Because the group was so insular and they intermarried so much, Rebecca knew each one of those 12 men personally. Authorities needed her help identifying and kind of deciphering incriminating documents. And all of this time away from home was causing some problems. Her husband just couldn't understand why she kept helping the authorities since it took so much time away from him and their two children. And she told him, I'm quoting straight from the book here, you have never been that young girl violated in the name of God. And what Warren did to his wives were violations. Again, I'm not gonna go into graphic detail. That's not necessary. But it was shocking to read about the hold he had on his followers to the point that they actually participated in his sexual abuse of young girls, all because he told them that it was what God wanted. When Warren's next trial began, he decided to represent himself. And I'm sure you've heard that old adage, a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. I'll just let that one sit there. Warren argued that what the state was doing was interfering with his freedom of religion. He told the judge that he had sent a crippling disease upon her that would kill her. Now it was hard to tell if the things he was doing were brilliant, deranged, or both. Was he trying to intimidate her? Or did he really believe he had the power to do that? It was hard for Rebecca to have to answer Warren's questions because since he was acting as his own counsel, he got to cross-examine her. But Rebecca knew that she was speaking for all the other FLDS women who would never get the chance to testify about what had been done to them or their sisters, or their mothers, or their children, their cousins. Now, after Warren was convicted on one count of sexual assault of a child and one count of aggravated sexual assault of a child, Rebecca got to testify again during the punishment phase of Warren's trial. In Texas, they separate that kind of into two different proceedings. So now the jury was able to hear things that they hadn't been able to hear before like how Warren had abused one of his own nieces and one of his nephews, how he had married at least 24 child brides and arranged more than 65 child marriages for other men. Prosecutors were now able to share a passage from Warren's own journal, and I'm quoting directly from the book again. Warren wrote, There is a girl the Lord wants me to take. She is 13. Oh, I just want the Lord's will. If the world knew what I was doing, they would hang me from the highest tree. At this proceeding, Warren was sentenced to life plus 20 years. He still continues to try to run the FLDS from prison. Plenty of the truly faithful or truly delusional are happy to continue to follow him. I think that brings up the obvious question. How do you reach someone that's in that deep, that's in this sort of situation? Or maybe you know someone that it's not this extreme yet, but they're definitely in an unhealthy faith group and they can't even see the abuse happening around them or to them. I've put some links in the show notes that will give you some resources to help you start that conversation. I really hope you'll take a look at them. Even if you don't need them now, be prepared in case God puts you in a position to be someone who can speak truth to someone who's being abused. I wanna remind you that I've got a book available on Amazon. It's called How to Kick Fear to the Curb, Private Investigator Approved Personal Safety Tips with Biblical Evidence to Fear Not. So like the title says, it gives you my very best tips as a private investigator to increase safety in all areas of your life even in church settings where there may be some form of spiritual abuse happening. I also make sure that we spend a lot of time looking at scriptures where God helps us to see how we are not to live in a spirit of fear. And I think that's so we can feel confident stepping out to help others. So grab a copy for yourself or one to share with a friend. You're going to find it on Amazon and I've made it easy for you. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. And for a short time longer, I've lowered the price to make it accessible for everyone. So don't wait. Grab your copy and a copy to share. For our scripture passage this week, I'm going to read from the Amplified Bible, Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But in those days, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will subtly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false arguments and twisted doctrine. Their sentence of condemnation, which God has decreed from a long time ago, is not idle, but is still in force. And their destruction and deepening misery is not asleep, but is on its way. I wanna take a minute just to focus on one particular sentence from this passage. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false arguments and twisted doctrine. I think most of the time when we hear the word greed, we associate it with money. And that is often the focus of people's greed. But one definition of greed calls it an intense and selfish desire for something, especially wealth, power, or food. Now, in this case, Warren Jeffs and many of the other FLDS men showed an insatiable lust for sex with underage girls, but also for the power and sense of control their actions gave them. Any one of us could become an object of someone's desire for control. And even if we willingly join their group or sit under their teaching, if we find out that they're not there to help people, but to exploit them as the scripture we read says, then we've got a problem. So if you notice someone in a position of authority who is getting more benefit out of it themselves than they are giving to the people that they're teaching or in authority over, that's a problem that can easily lead to abuse. And I will bet, just based on statistics, that you or someone you know is in a situation like that right now. And it may not be abusive yet, or just not toward you or the person that you love. But we all just need to keep our eyes open and our hearts as well. Because it's so easy to deny what we're seeing because we've trusted the person who is now acting in questionable ways. One thing that I've learned from working with and talking to people who have had their trust horribly abused is that they're almost never their abusers-only victim. So if you're in a situation like that or someone you love, you're not alone and you're not crazy and you're not overreacting. You have the right to share what's happening with as many people as you need to until you find an ally who can help you stop the abuse. And if you're listening and you've ever dealt with a situation like this, I would love to hear from you so I can continue to learn how people can best protect themselves. I'm going to also put in the show notes links to a couple of other episodes that are similar to this one, because some of the guests that I've had have shared just such incredible testimonies, such incredible resources for us that you don't want to miss it. And you can also help someone else begin their journey as that different kind of PI, person of impact, if you'll share this episode. And if you can... Go right now, because I know if I don't do things right in the moment, I tend to forget them. Go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to The Unlovely Truth, and give me a five-star rating with a nice review so that more people can discover the podcast and learn how to stay safer themselves. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neo Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.